0: Morning, scripture reading is from John's Gospel, uh, the first chapter, verses 43 to 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him about whom Moses in the law. And also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him, he said to him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, Where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Thanks be to God. Well, it's the second Sunday of Epiphany, and I feel constrained to offer a bit of a corrective to Ryan's uh, introduction to Epiphany uh, last week. It's, it's not about getting into an ice-cold river and finding a cross that's been thrown in and swimming to shore. Yeah, my interpretation. <laughs> Epiphany is about light. It is the revealing of light. It is the surprise. The lights are on. But the Gospels don't play into that. The Gospels present a Jesus who is full of mystery. The Gospels present a Jesus who says, Shh, don't tell anybody that I heal the sick. Don't let on that I'm the Son of God. Don't make a big thing about it. Don't make, as my mother would have said, don't make a to-do. And even in the calling of the Twelve, the formation of Jesus' core followers, There is a dimension of misdirection and mystery that leaves us perplexed, maybe. A calling that is full of irony. A calling that makes us think again what it means to be a disciple. Discipleship, we are convinced, begins with the work of evangelism. And evangelism is often considered a swear word. Um, you'll, you'll note from uh, the next slide that, that there are many different forms of evangelism. There's street evangelism, where somebody's on the street corner proclaiming the gospel, and you're supposed to stop on your way to wherever it is you're headed and listen. Um, I have uh, had the... Misfortune of being a street preacher uh, on a couple of occasions found that that was clearly not my gifting. <laughs> it is a little hard to get into the nuance of the Greek heiress tense when you are doing street evangelism. So of course from street evangelism I tried that other tried and true method door-to-door evangelism which uh I would say the success rate in selling Sports Illustrated is about twice what it is when. Uh, then door-to-door evangelism, uh, door-to-door evangelism is just painful. It's like a, it's like a three-hour root canal without medication. So, uh, so there is the other tried and true method, the crusade evangelism model. The the. Put up a big tent and y'all come and hear the gospel proclaimed. Of course, crusade evangelism tends to work in environments where there aren't other sorts of places of entertainment value. Where it's the venue in town. The, The problem with evangelism is that we've made it as the, as, as the tiny print in the fourth slide there, evangelism, so easy even a four-year-old can do it. Or, or maybe we should say evangelism so annoying even a four-year-old can do it. But it doesn't answer for us our, our ambivalence about evangelism, our frustrations with evangelistic tactics and strategies and ways to deflect people's genuine questions, you would be amazed at some of the things I've experienced in evangelism training in my life about how to take people's, literally, their stomach aches and turn it into an opportunity for having them pray the sinner's prayer. Oh, just shoot me, please. (laughs) Our ambivalence about evangelism calling people to faith is well earned. Western culture, American culture has turned evangelism into marketing. It's turned it into selling cornflakes. And, But that doesn't relieve us. The obligation, the calling to invite people into faith. How do we do that? How do we call people to to an honest, legitimate, growing faith in Jesus Christ? Just because we don't like the tactics and strategies of street evangelism and door-to-door evangelism and crusade evangelism and and evangelism explosion and, and every other branded method of evangelism out there, it doesn't relieve us of that obligation, that invitation to say how do we follow Jesus and how do we invite people to join us in that journey this passage John 1 43-51 is a passage about Jesus calling new disciples it is a passage that is dripping with irony when we read for it it's it's a text that is in the context of a larger set of events that happen in one week. That week begins with the witnessing of John the Baptist. And, and Ryan introduced that really powerfully last week. That was good. You, you got the intro? Eh, yeah. <laughs> Ryan, Ryan did a great job in unpacking John the Baptist's mission and message. But that week continues for Jesus and, and John's Gospel records it. And Jesus does something that we might frown on today. He, uh, he poached John's disciples. <laughs> in, the, in the very next section, um, chapter, chapter 1, uh, verses... Um, got to turn the page here, uh, beginning with verse 29 uh, through uh, through 42, Jesus goes after John's best disciples. says, yeah, the, the, the thing that happened when I got baptized, you know, uh, follow, you know, I, this is my son, whom I'm well pleased, yeah, why don't, you, why don't you come follow me? Now, if you're John the Baptist, you might, you know. You might feel bad about that. You might might worry about that. That, I mean, we we have a term for that in the modern American church. We call it sheep stealing. (laughs) That's exactly what Jesus does here. He goes and he poaches Simon, Peter, and Andrew, James, and John. But then Jesus calls two more disciples. Philip and Nathaniel. Philip is impressed from the get-go about Jesus. We don't know exactly why Philip is impressed other than Jesus said, follow me. And we don't really know Philip's backstory. If he was another one of John's disciples that he poached or if he was just impressed that, that Jesus poached John's disciples, we, we don't know. We just know that Philip got this simple invitation: "Follow me," from Jesus, and he and he said yes. But his friend Nathaniel required a bit more persuasion. Verses forty-six to forty-eight just just drip with irony. Philip finds Nathaniel. You know, we found the one that Moses and the prophets promised. He's Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And, you know, Nathaniel's response in verse 46, can anything good come out of that hole in the wall? You thought I was going to say it, didn't you? You thought I was going there, but I didn't. Let the record show. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So, So John's already established irony as part of what's going on in this text. But listen to what Jesus says about Nathaniel. Here's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. You've just called my hometown a uh, hole in the wall. And you're an Israelite who has no deceit. Jesus is capable of his own irony in this text. He matches Nathaniel punch for punch here. I know that we want, to tra- we want to interpret that as Jesus being very spiritual. Oh, Nathaniel, you are a good person. No, he isn't. Nathaniel's a jerk. Nathaniel looks at Nazareth, which is a beautiful little town, by the way, and he says, can anything good come from there? And Jesus says, oh, Look at you, a guy with no deceit. Jesus matches him irony for irony. And in that moment, Nathaniel realizes he's met his match. Snark wins. It's not, snark is not a technique that I've gotten a lot of training in when I've gone to evangelism school. But it works for Jesus in this passage. He takes nathaniel where he's at and he says i'm not letting you get away with your nonsense you've you've snarked and held people at bay your entire life you're not going to do it with me here's an israelite with no deceit whatsoever and nathaniel realizes wow i'm, I'm undone i'm caught here it is and in that sparring Nathaniel comes to know and confess Jesus. And then Jesus does something fascinating. He says to Nathaniel, do you believe because I told you that I saw you under a fig tree? You'll see greater things than these. And he hearkens back to Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28. He points back to that story. You're going to see you're gonna see the angels ascending and descending the ladder from heaven to minister with the Son of Man. You're gonna climb Jacob's ladder. You're gonna see it happen. And Jesus' invitation to Nathaniel meets him where he's at, snark for snark, and then promises him the desires of his heart. Jesus has a way, a surprising way, of calling disciples. Being a disciple means calling disciples. Philip's first act is to go to his friend Nathaniel and say, Hey, to borrow a phrase from American evangelical history, Hey, I found it. Some of you are old enough to understand that reference. Some of you have been with Campus Crusade before. You know that reference. We'll just leave it there. I found it! Disciples. Being a disciple means calling disciples. But John's Gospel changes up the order, because we would say you find Jesus, and then you witness to Jesus, and then your life gets transformed. Well, Jesus jumbles that up a little bit. The the missiology of the fourth Gospel is one of bearing witness and then finding Jesus. To use the language of the modern 12-step movement, you fake it till you make it. There are times in our lives we, we, we sit in the church and we go, what a boatload of hooey. That usually happens every time I listen to myself on Monday morning. <laughs> but... <laughs> Wow, did you have to laugh that loud? You couldn't, you couldn't go with it just a little bit? Oh, you had to go all the whole way, yeah. Thank you, Nancy. <laughs> I am the Rodney Dangerfield of preachers. <sighs> we fake it till we make it sometimes. The, the, the reality is that sometimes we sit in our doubts and our frustrations and we look at the hypocrisies and we look at the, the, the moral weaknesses of the church and we just go, I just can't do this anymore. I just can't put up with this nonsense anymore. And yet we show up one more Sunday and we, we hear the gospel. Maybe not from the guy up front. Maybe from the person sitting next to us. Maybe from somebody else. That's, that's why we practice a multi-voiced worship in this church. Because it's not just my voice that communicates good news. It's when folks like Andrew tell the story of the small groups that have changed his life. And when we sing songs that Ryan has written. About his faith experience. And when we hear poetry from Nikki, and when Sydney invites us to hear the word of the Lord. That's why we have many voices speak on Sunday morning, because if we just hear one voice, we just hear one experience of the gospel. And part of witnessing to our faith, part of faking it until we make it, is that powerful notion that if we share together, the Holy Spirit speaks through one of those voices and gives us hope and frames our life in a new way. So we begin with bearing witness, and then we find Jesus in John's Gospel. And then, only then, So our life begin to be transformed. Only then do we begin to hear the promise. Yeah, you're going to see Jacob's ladder. It's a misdirection that Jesus plays because we think we ought to get all of the facts all lined up perfectly. We ought to get all of our theology in the box properly. We We ought to pack correctly for the journey that lies ahead. Some of us take our time and pack carefully, rolling things up, putting them in the little packing cubes, arranging the packing cubes in our properly designed Pullman so that we can put it on the plane and go. Some of us just throw stuff in. I'm not looking over here. uh, And the reality is we end up at the same destination. That's Jesus' misdirection. We bear witness, and then we find Him. We fake it till we make it. We, We declare that there's got to be good news out there. And then we discover Jesus. The other thing that happens in this Gospel is that the the disciples come from all sorts of interesting places and backgrounds. They come from holes in the wall. None of the disciples in John's first chapter come from Jerusalem. None of them are religious experts. None of them are trained in the craft and skill and arts of being a religious professional. In their day, they are smelly, stinky fishermen from Bethsaida and lazy, shiftless, unemployed folks sitting under fig trees and they're from Nazareth. Disciples come from all sorts of interesting places and backgrounds. Jesus misdirects us in in where the good news comes from. We keep thinking the good news is, is both a great production that will take us to greatness, and it is not. The gospel takes us into the pain of others takes us into our own pain. It takes us into dealing with life as it is, not life as we would like it to be. The transforming work of the gospel is that it calls us to be authentic and real. It calls us to admit our brokenness and to live honestly with that brokenness, not to cover it up, to hide it or to ignore it or to wish it away but to offer it to the one who can heal us and even then that healing isn't about bells and whistles and greatness and glory and it's about getting through continuing the journey being a disciple The third thing this gospel does is it reminds us that confessing Jesus leads to ironic moments. We think saying yes to Jesus, you know, angel choirs break out and, you know, life is different and everything is wonderful and and all is well with my soul and instead what we see in this gospel is snark for snark. And I I suspect, although I have no biblical evidence to cite, but I suspect that Nathanael and Jesus went snark for snark throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. That that there were moments on the journey when Nathanael had some snarky thing to say and Jesus would just give it right back because that's how Nathaniel heard good news. Not all of us hear good news that way. Nathaniel, being emotionally crippled, kind of like me, hears the good news in a certain way. And did. And confessing Jesus will lead to those moments of irony in our lives. Those moments of, this is not how I thought it would work out. This is not what I expected. This is different. Yeah. The good news, the gospel is going to take us places we do not expect to go. Into adventures we could not imagine. To places we would not dare be at. Jesus is engaged in this passage in a whole set of misdirections. Misdirection in the pathway to faith, a misdirection in the location of faith, and a misdirection in the explanation of faith. And Jesus does that with us. I've had plenty of opportunity over a decade of service here to hear many of your faith stories. None of them fit a pattern. All of them are different. Because we all hear the gospel differently. There is no cookie cutter approach to evangelism or discipleship. There is only the journey we are on together with others who are on their journey. The challenge of being the church in that environment is to learn to hear each other's stories, to bless each other, to encourage each other, to confront each other, to welcome each other, to love one another. So this morning, some questions for you to think about. If witnessing weren't a canned presentation of a theological bias, in other words, if witnessing weren't everything we've been trained it to be throughout a lifetime of being a Christian, if witnessing weren't that, who would you talk to about Jesus? If they, whoever you talk to, found Jesus, what would you do to support that relationship? And if anyone in your life could experience the transformational change that comes from friendship with Jesus, who would that be? John Knox, the great reformer, used to pray, Give me Scotland or I die. Who's your Scotland? John Knox had a vision big enough for a country. My vision, not so big. Who's your Scotland? Who is it that you would die for so that they would discover the richness of following Jesus in their life? That's the essence of discipleship. That's what it means to follow Jesus. For Philip to answer the call, follow me, and then go to his snarkiest friend, Nathaniel, and say, hey, I found the one. It's like, from Nazareth? That's discipleship. One more thing. Jesus promised His disciples three things according to the New Testament scholar William Barclay. He promised that they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. When you hear that evaluation, how do you stack up? Do you feel completely fearless? Are you absurdly happy? Are you in constant trouble? <laughs> My hunch is if we find ourselves in constant trouble. It's because we're completely fearless and absurdly happy. The good news is we are called to be disciples. Discipleship calls others to discipleship. May we, as Christ followers, find a way to tell the story so that those we love hear it and respond not to us, not to our marketing greatness but to the Jesus the light revealed that gives us hope